Okay, welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants. Hey, Kyle. Hi, Raf. Great to be here with you. Same. This is so weird. It's like you're on Zoom, but it's just like you're here in the room with me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so we are here to discuss why we keep having the same conversation in the Pilates industry. So um, now you've been a guest on the show before, uh, but just for those people who might have forgotten or maybe haven't listened to that episode yet, can you introduce yourself to the Pilates stratosphere? The shortest summary ever, yes. Um, short version, former dancer, turned into Pilates instructor, movement enthusiast. I teach Pilates. I like making people feel good. I've done education and other things. The end. Well, that was pretty, pretty <laughs> concrete. Uh, and you are based in New York and yes. you trained originally at Equinox, is that right? No, I trained originally with Polestar, with Polestar. and then I ended up uh, working for Equinox in a teacher training capacity. Right, okay. Uh, and all right, and so here we are in Melbourne, Australia. All right, so we're here to, just to converse and solve the problems of the world. Well, I don't know if we're going to solve the problems, dear listener, but we're, we're going to have a crack at it and we're going to talk about them anyway. Uh, and hopefully I'll bring up some interesting uh, thoughts uh, in the process. So which conversation, because this is, this is something that came up over dinner last night. Um, you and your husband are staying here with me, my wife and I, uh, which has been so awesome having you here. Um, and so, yeah, we're, this came up over dinner last night. And so tell us like, what conversations do we keep having? Um, a lot of conversations, actually, <laughs> but mainly the conversations about what is and isn't safe, what is and isn't Pilates. Um, I think just insert any any conversation that you as a Pilates instructor feel like you continue to hear echoed again and again over social media and on the internet, and it's potentially a conversation that falls into that category. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't know. Uh, so I, I experienced this myself because obviously I'm somewhat of a, in a very minor way, a public figure in the Pilates world. So these are the conversations that I have routinely with people. But I, 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 I kind of guess, I imagine that most Pilates instructors, so dear listener, I'm thinking of you here, uh, although you ain't most Pilates instructors, you're a shimmering, shining star in the, the Pilates experiment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, I think a lot of Pilates instructors might not necessarily, I mean, I don't know how aware you are on social media, dear listener, but maybe this is something that, a question that keeps coming up for you or something that you're, you know, feel some degree of anxiety about or concern about with your clients or you're not sure of yourself if you're doing it correctly or if you're a legit one or, or whatever. So, yeah, I'm not sure. So I, it definitely manifests as a public conversation, but I think it also manifests um, individually as well. So, all right, so what is and isn't safe, what is and isn't Pilates? I think those are the two big categories, categories right? And so what is and what isn't safe? I mean, that's like essentially like the first 80 episodes of this podcast were <laughs> about that. Like, you know, isn't how important is neutral spine? You know, imprint or neutral or neither. Um, headrest up or down. Um, which exercise are safe in prenatal, for prenatal and postnatal women? Um, should we do low impact? You know, is it important to do low impact? Uh, is 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 slow and controlled the best the best um i think those are the key ones um yeah uh, and then and then 
what is and isn't Pilates is a perennial one. And I think the the battle lines on that have kind of shifted a little bit over the decades. Like, you know, 20 years ago, it was like contemporary versus classical um, in the forces of good versus evil. evil. I'm, I'm not saying one or the other is good or evil in this metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> but now it's kind of like that. I think that war still rages, but there are also now contemporary and classical versus like fitness <laughs> Pilates. Yeah, or like contemporary and classical versus somatic or I think the the subcategory of contemporary has become very large. Uh-huh. Um I actually don't even really know how clearly to define that at this point. So Right. So it's uh it, it reminds me of the Peloponnesian Wars in ancient Greece where it's like every city fighting against every other city. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> We're all Greeks, you know, we should um we, we should get along. All right. So, and then there's obviously, uh, yeah, does pineapple go on pizza? Yes, is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we've solved that one at least. Um, all right. So, you know, we keep having these conversations and they're, I guess, the, 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 the curiosity that arises in me when you, you know, when you mentioned this at dinner last night. It's like, yeah, we do keep having, like, I keep getting questions uh, and often questions from the same people. Like, you know, what I've observed in, say, like neutral spine conversations is, you know, I can have a conversation with somebody, very rational conversation. We can talk about it, explore questions, look at the research, look at the biomechanics. Then after that, like the next week, I'll get the same question again. And it's like, I'll... We never had the conversation almost. <laughs> or, or or sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I understand everything we talked about, but then there's this different example of the same situation. So maybe, okay, we talked about neutral spine in, you know, the you know versus in, say, I don't know, footwork, right? And then we're going, okay, but what about in squats? You know, and so we, we can't, seems like we can't translate the principle from one example to another example. And it feels like there's almost an infinite number of examples. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. But also I think maybe, as you and I talked about earlier, there's two subcategories of people who are maybe having the same conversation over and over again. So I feel like one of the entry points for the conversation we were having at dinner is that I was expressing frustration as someone who's been teaching in the industry for a while around feeling like people who are peers of mine, so people who I consider to be leaders, um, I feel like I continue to run up against the same Mm -hmm. conversations and misunderstandings with them. Um, And then the other sub part of that, which I think is important to sort of parse out, is that there are new people who are coming into the industry who we may be having the same conversations with. And this is not to put those people down or make them feel bad about needing to have those same conversations over and over again, because it's actually very confusing when you enter the industry because it's really hard to know which conversation to listen to because all of the people who've been here a little bit longer, we can't seem to agree um, on what, what is, what is correct. What does research actually say? What is and isn't safe? What is and isn't Pilates? So I think a lot of incoming instructors, um, or maybe not even incoming, but people who have happily existed in their bubble of Pilates and then step out into the larger world of Pilates can feel potentially overwhelmed or really isolated because they don't know which conversation to join. And there's a lot of that can create a lot of um, 
feelings of like insecurity or just anxiety around like, do I need to be evidence-based? What does it mean to be evidence-based? Am I doing this? How do I know? And Mm -hmm. that that's more of the, I thought that's more where my mind was leaning with that. Right. So the nuance on what I said a moment ago about uh, having the same conversation again a week later is in the intervening week, that person's then had someone else say to them, oh, and when you do squats, make sure you keep neutral spine. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, which which do I believe and are they both compatible or can I believe both or are they mutually exclusive? In which case, yeah, how, how do I choose? Right, yeah, I, I think you're probably right there. Um, so then we get to the question of, and, and, you know, like we said, this is neutral spine, this is prenatal, this is uh, headrest up or down, this is, you know, all of those, all of those things that we talked about. So... Why do those people? You know, is that where is that where it comes from? You know the 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 you know essentially like you know leaders in the industry, more senior, in you know people more experienced, more uh, sort of influential people, or is there some broader cultural context as well? Do you think? I think there's absolutely. Well, I think it's both. I think there's absolutely. We as human beings like learn by example. So like whoever is modeling behavior for us is probably affecting us. And I think we are creatures by nature that seek out validation from our peers, but also the culture of Pilates. And I think I, I'm saying this very broadly. It's not a very, in its own way, it's not a very safe environment. It doesn't feel very safe to make mistakes Mm. and it's not a safe feeling environment to like ask questions is often how I perceive it. Yeah. I think there is a broader cultural thing there because I remember vividly when I was teaching like a decade or more ago before I kind of had my awakening to evidence-based practice, I literally said to my students, we don't let our clients move in, you know, in quote, incorrect. And I didn't put in quotes around incorrect at the time, right? right? I was deadly serious in, in incorrect ways. Or I might've even said unsafe ways, you know, as in like not in perfect neutral spine when you're doing footwork. Um, so, dear listener, I've been there before. Uh, yeah, so I think, and and then there's, so so we have this kind of streak of perfectionism that runs through the Pilates industry. It's a culture of perfectionism, which I mean, you said uh, we're afraid to. It's not safe to make mistakes. I, I kind of does that. Do you think that means the same thing as perfectionism? I think it does. And I, I'm when I when I'm saying it's not safe to make mistakes, I think my brain is thinking of like education settings and Mm -hmm. like the concept of trying to create a classroom setting where everybody feels like being wrong is okay. Like Mm -hmm. being wrong doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad person or that you're an idiot. It just means you didn't know that specific thing. And I think you've said this a lot on the podcast and in other areas and breathe education that like, once you know better, you just do better. Like once you have better information, then you implement the better information and you can't know everything. But I think the, sort of structure or dogma of the like Pilates industry. And maybe this is something that comes from dance is like this idea that we all have to be perfect and like enter knowing everything, which Mm -hmm. is impossible. Mm -hmm. And since Pilates is taught by people who've been inculcated in that culture and probably attracted because they, that was kind of their tendency. in in when I say they, I mean, our, (laughs) (laughs) the other people over there, (laughs) the Royal they, um, (laughs) Uh, and so when you're in a Pilates class and you're being taught by someone who's extremely detailed and proficient in all of that sort of, you know, type of cueing and knowledge and stuff, 
And then the people who love that and are attracted to it and want to become Pilates instructors are going to be the people who resonate with that very detailed perfectionistic sort of thing. So then when they get in their training, that's what they aspire to. And then they in turn become the trainers and that's what they hand down. And it's like, well, what's the chicken and what's the egg here? It's hard to say. <laughs> um, I mean, similar to your example about saying don't, don't do that or whatever it was you were saying in your training. Mm. I mean, I also did the exact same thing. I was initially taught that if you were teaching a client who had osteoporosis, that you could never flex or rotate their spine, which means I spent an unfortunate number of years, and I'm very sorry to all of these clients, keeping them completely rigid um, and never letting them twist or rotate, which is ironic because obviously they were twisting and flexing in their regular lives outside of the Pilates studio. But because that's what I knew at the time, that's also what I imparted to my students and I'm sorry to my students, but then once you learn that 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 there are more options, um, I think the Pilates community at large would do better. And this is where the sort of like why do we keep having these same conversations over and over again comes from, is once we have more information, why are we so resistant mm. to allow ourselves to implement that? Like what I think you and I had talked about, it comes from this sort of scarcity mindset. There's a lot of fear around or I feel there's a lot of fear in the Pilates industry around allowing new things to happen. We're very sort of culturally adverse to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I agree with you, but I, just, I also just think that's, well, that's just human nature, right? If I think about the resistance of people here in Australia to the successive waves of migrants, it was like, oh, Greeks keep out in the 40s and then it was Italians keep out in the 50s and it was Vietnamese keep out in the 70s. And it was the Greeks and Italians saying, you know, Vietnamese keep out, you know, this is our country. And then yeah. it's the Vietnamese, the Greeks and the Italians saying, you know, Middle Easterners keep out, you know. So it's like, as soon as you've been here for one generation, like, okay, that was great that we let in refugees when I was a kid, you know, when I was, when I was an immigrant, you know, but no more, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But then I think I try to think of like a medical model, like I think of in science and medicine, like it's positive when we learn new things, because then we can help people more. And essentially, like, we are in a service based industry that is built around trying to help people. And if that's the premise, like if we're always thinking about who's the person we're trying to serve, that's like my favorite quote and question every single time. And the answer is always the body in front of you, the person who's working with you coming to your class. If your if our collective goal as an industry is to serve that person, like we should be a little more excited about having better information around uh, how we can help that person. But then I hundred percent agree. But what gets in the way of that? Do you think? I mean, it is the scarcity mindset piece. I think that is modeled as behavior. But then, not to only pin it on the people in the industry who have more power, but I think because of whatever the cultural values are that are being sort of subconsciously implemented, a lot of people are really scared of asking questions and making mistakes and asking like, well, why do we have to keep the headrest up when we do short spine? And I think that maybe this is kind of what you were saying before, um, as humans, we want to feel like we're part of a group and we want to feel like we're accepted by the group that we're a part of. And once you start to wear an identity, especially if that identity is like the identity of Pilates instructor, you want your peers 
to see you in a positive light, I will assume, which makes it harder to step outside of yourself and feel like you have permission to ask questions and challenge what everybody else seems to be also agreeing on. Hmm. So there's a, there's a, there's a, I guess it's kind of that's a microcosm for what we're seeing in the in the larger world, right? Around whether it's like mask mandates or you know whatever, right. you know, it's like whether you're wearing a mask or not says more about what your political affiliations than it does about anything else. Yeah, especially at this point. Right. So so we're essentially signalling our tribal affiliation by whether we do neutral spine or not. You know. Yeah, yeah. That's that's how it feels, honestly. Huh. So how do we, you know, and like you said at the start, we've got this, you know, back in the good old days, it was just uh, classical versus contemporary and everything was simple then. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, there's, there's air quotes around that. <laughs> uh, but now I think, you know, you're right what you say that contemporary now has kind of sub, you know, split into multiple, you know, there's somatic, there's, I don't know, fitness is really... I would include that in contemporary. I think it's probably a different thing. There's probably multiple different layers within that. And even within the fitness, there's probably like the high-intensity Pilates folks who look down their nose at the people who use megaformers, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) And vice versa. Right. (laughs) And um, so this is like, it's sort of like everyone's, when you're in primary school, sitting in a circle, like making a daisy chain or writing a number on each other's back and trying to figure out. But it's like everybody looking down their nose at the next person who looks down their nose at the next person who looks down their nose at the person who looked down. Yeah. And so everyone has, so, so how do we de, how, how do, how do we move from, how do we move from this? Like we're kind of locked into this, how do we get out? Groundhog Day <laughs> situation here. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to think about that. I think the way that, I think ways forward, well, one, the internet is amazing because the internet makes more conversations like this and others readily available and hopefully are things that start to invite other smaller feeling people to come into the conversation. I think something that I like to think a lot about is that even though there are some voices in the industry who may speak louder than others, that doesn't automatically make them correct or the best voice. And if you, and not that it's about being the best or the worst, it's just like everyone has permission to contribute to the conversation. And I think that instead of seeing things from a deficit mindset, it benefits all of us when we kind of give ourselves permission to shop around. Like, because I can name a lot of different things about fitness Pilates, mega reformer Pilates, even like very somatic breathing on your back Pilates, even neutral spine, whatever. I can find positive things in all of those scenarios. That doesn't mean that everything from that scenario serves me or that I believe as an instructor that that is a valuable way for me to currently be teaching or serving my clients. But the tribalism around like, what is and isn't Pilates, what is the best Pilates, it's, that's the part where I feel like it gets, we lose, we fall off the tracks a little bit when we go down that path, because again, it never really steers us back to the main question for me, which is always like, how is this helping the person in front of you? Um, I think that, I think the, you've uh, illuminated, um, I'm not sure wittingly or not, the answer there, which I think is also the same answer to 
uh, to the broader kind of cultural issues that we're facing, which is that we have to be able to disagree without hating each other or judging each other as being bad. So the fact that somebody does or doesn't teach neutral spine, like can't, doesn't need to have any relevance to whether they're a good or a bad person. Right. And like, you know, we, there's certain things that I believe are like actual facts. Like when I believe in science and there are things that we can measure and there are things that I believe we can know as truisms. However, that being said, um, you know, if, if the somatic practice of teaching somebody neutral spine really serves a client for whatever reason, I think that's fantastic and really good for that person. I don't think that our goal as Pilates instructors is to make every single class completely accessible to every single person. I think that naturally we are all going to niche down and you will find your people um, and they will find you, hopefully. Um, but the... What am I trying to say? That you'll you'll find your people and that it's okay for us to have variety Um and like, for example, I see people teaching things all the time, which for me as a mover, like wouldn't serve me at all. If I was in that class, I would find it highly annoying. But there are other people having that experience that find it incredible. And it's like really moving and life changing for them. And I think that that's just as valuable in the fitness and movement space as whatever, you know, it is that I want from a class. And so giving just making more space for everybody, like not. I think I'm like dancing around this because I'm trying not to like fall into the toxic positivity category, but and I don't know how to move away from that. I'm not saying that, but I am, I am trying to say that I think the preciousness with which we treat like what is correct and what is valuable is that's where I find that we fall into this messy area of always having the same conversation over and over again, and then again like losing track of the thing that's actually important. Right. So we have to be able to have a conversation about what is objectively true in the world. Like, in fact, if you have back pain, is it, in fact, better to be in neutral spine or not? And that is something that we can – there is an answer to – there is a yes or no answer right. to that question. Uh, and we can we can find that answer. So we have to be able to have discussions around that because our goal, our, our, our common goal, has to be what's best for our clients. And so we have to be able to have just rational discussions around factual questions without there being any kind of moral violence to that conversation. It's just like, okay, is this a true fact or not? And that doesn't have to mean anything beyond like yes or no. Mm-hmm. Right? There doesn't have to be like any – if somebody believes different to what I believe, that makes them like a, 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 you know the enemy sort of thing. So we have to be able, be able to have those conversations from a shared – perspective of what is you know curiosity about what is best for our clients and willingness and like even eagerness to find like oh is there a better way than what I'm currently doing because like wouldn't that be awesome if I could have even better results for my clients like wouldn't that be amazing and then simultaneously we have to find a space where there are more subjective areas where there might be more than one right answer that we can be just like go along to get along with people. It's like, okay, you can do your thing, I can do my thing, and we can both be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, great. We'll solve, we'll solve all the problems. Yeah, yeah okay, it. good. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> this will be the last episode of Pilates Elephants, folks. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. I think this conversation is somehow still going to continue happening. Um, 
I forgot what my point was going to be after that. I agree, is the short version. <laughs> so how do we get to a place where, or firstly, how do we differentiate between those two categories of things? So things where it's like, okay, you can have your truth, I can have my truth, and we can both be right, okay, versus something where there actually is an objective truth that's out in the world and we could, you know, we can't we can't both be right if we believe different things. We might be both be wrong, <laughs> But it can't be true that the moon is both made of green cheese and not made of green cheese. Right. Right. So (laughs) the moon is or isn't. So how do we differentiate between those two categories of things? I mean, okay, the simple answer for me is you go, that's that's the value of evidence-based practice is it's like there are true, the body works a very specific way. We're learning more about it every day. And like, I think that following whatever science has to share with us about that is the most useful and easy or not easy, but like accurate way of agreeing on what that is. And then I also say that with the understanding that I think people push up against, or I've experienced people pushing up against my sort of rally around like wanting to always refer to science because they're like, well, but science gets things wrong all the time. And you're like, yes, it does. But then you have to, I think that's actually uh, the error is not in science necessarily, but a lack of understanding around what, like how science works and what it is and how we study things and what it takes to build a study and run a trial and then interpret information, um, which is like a whole separate side conversation. So with the knowledge, like that's with the knowledge that somebody else knows how to do that better than I, I choose to refer to science-based practices as a way for informing what I can know is and isn't true. Um, But that also comes with the caveat of understanding that information over time will change because we as a species are constantly leveling up our game. Like we're improving technology, we're improving medical practices, and that's a good thing, which is why um, it's important as Pilates instructors and practitioners to stay on top of that, like to be involved in that conversation and be up, open to updating your ideas as things change because they will. Like you've talked about this so much, but I was I was raised in the era of like muscle activation techniques and I can teach you so much about how to find your TA. And I even personally have to consciously unprogram myself every time I take a class to like not do the thing where you're like, my TA is activated, it's not activated. It's like I have to actively deprogram that. Um, it turns out it's not very useful, like or doesn't do the things we thought it did. And that's I think that's OK. And just knowing that information is going to change Um and that makes your job more fun and interesting and dynamic. Right. And I, I, I think just to kind of to, uh, double click on what you said there about the the science is wrong. You know, science does get things wrong. But the the antidote to when science gets wrong is better science. Right. right. Not just making shit up. <laughs> Which is, I think that's my biggest beef with Pilates land right now is that we we don't, uh, we're creating these barriers for ourselves where it's like we should be in a position to make better Pilates as a result of the things that we are not necessarily getting right as an industry, but instead we push back and try to like hide in our egos around, well, but this is the way I was taught by so-and-so and so therefore it has to be correct, not not giving ourselves the willing the permission to like update a belief because we have better information. Do you think that's tied into, you know, for lack of a better term, the kind of guru model of Pilates where if I was taught by somebody I esteem very highly and I've kind of 
invested some part of my professional identity in the fact that that's part of my lineage and I was taught by that person, then it turns out that what they told me like actually doesn't align with current scientific understanding. It's like, oh, well, does that kind of undermine the whole foundation of my professional identity and everything I held to be true? Yeah, I think, I mean, guru in the room is like my other favorite topic that I will call continually <laughs> trying to break down. Um, yeah, I, I do think that there that is part of it. Um, and then I also think there's just, like we said before, not a lot of examples of people demonstrating how it's possible to be wrong mm -hmm. and then be like, oh, I actually, or, or just to say that you don't know the answer to something. Like, mm -hmm. um, and I think that can come from a lot of places. Like I'll speak for myself as an instructor and say that only recently in my career have I gotten to a place where I'm very happy to tell my clients when I don't know something and I can walk away and seek out more information to try and help them find the answer or, or direct them to somebody else who will have a better answer for them than I do. But especially in the beginning of teaching Pilates, because I was so much younger than the majority of the people that I was teaching, there was a weird construct in my mind where I felt like in order to be an authority in the room and to be an expert, I had to make them feel like I knew everything, um, which is more speaking to my ego and sense of fragility in that moment than anything else. And I think it's normal and natural, but just to name that so that people, if they are experiencing that, can have permission to move away from that mm. um, and then the other part of that that I was thinking about in response to what you just said is I personally have started to seek out like I've moved outside of the Pilates world to get examples of how it's possible to do that because I feel so frustrated by the lack of demonstration on how it's possible to do that in Pilates land um, and I'm not saying this is the answer for everyone but I know that for myself personally like moving more into the fitness space and working with a personal trainer and just like taking cues from fitness land and how they do things and talk about things and adjust and like have full, at least in my experience, willingness to kind of workshop ideas far more than I think we feel safe doing often in a Pilates setting. Um, and then just using that as permission for myself to also do that in my life as an instructor. Mm. Do you think that, you know, it, or do you think that also plays a role in the, uh, the? I mean, I was going to say gurus, I guess like the elders, the capital E and little e elders. Um, the original ones <laughs> and then the ones who learned under them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just those of us, you know, like myself who are educators or you know, have a podcast or, or whatever, like the ba people basically influences of influence in the industry. Do you think that also kind of redounds on that, you know, stratum of people, just basically the, you know, not wanting to be wrong. So if I'm, you know, I'm out here, you know, telling people every week on the podcast, oh, here's how the world works. Here's what we should be doing in the place world or whatever. And then like, it turns out like, oh, what I was just telling you like three months ago or six months ago or whatever, turns out actually, no, that, that wasn't right, you know. So, you know, do we, you know, to what extent is that an issue, do you think? And is that why maybe, if so, is that why we 
stick to really things that are like in a lot of ways kind of unfalsifiable in the Pilates world. Like so many of the so much of continue of the continued edu- education is what I would consider low value, and it's like mm. 101 ways to use a fitness circle or fascial fitness or some other sort of like basically totally out of the mainstream of science. It's like, you know, people in exercise science degree would just kind of raise one eyebrow like the rock and look at you like, you're doing what course, you know? The a course on choreography. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so do you think we kind of, yeah, so one, do you think that, you know, what you just discussed in terms of an instructor feeling like unable to or, you know, afraid, I guess, to unsafe to be wrong and feel like they have to have all the answers, do you think that's the same for the, for the gurus and do you also and do you think that if so do you think that's why we have essentially all this the education in pilates basically is just like more of what you already learned in your certification there's no we're not expanding our horizons that's such a great question um and the first thing that comes to mind in reference to the elders um and i'm biased in this because of my dance background is some there's a phenomena that often happens in um, artistic directors where they get to a certain level in their career and they no longer have any peers who are capable of challenging them. And so by default, they become these like very powerful guru type figures. And I think that that is also an example that we see in Pilates land where you there uh, to the elders specifically and like i'll name a couple just to make the example more concrete but like you know romana came out of retirement essentially to like take over joe pilates legacy um and she had to be i didn't i don't know romana i never worked with her personally but it's she had to be the absolute authority on pilates in order for that pilates to survive and there wasn't any room in that type of dynamic and situation for her to have peers or people who were giving her feedback about what she was and wasn't doing. And I also, based on what I've heard about her, I don't think she would have enjoyed that feedback, even if there was somebody to give it to her. Um, But that's the challenge and the danger of being a leader in any industry is that I think once you start to get into a position where you lose peers in the room who are able to challenge your ideas, you can plateau but also like start to live in a little bit of a tower that makes you more inaccessible which then i'm assuming because i've never had the experience maybe makes you act from more of a fear-based place because Mm -hmm. i think intrinsically as creatures humans like to feel powerful and once you've asserted a certain amount of power it will be very difficult to give that up and it's much more challenging to humble yourself and admit that there could be other options and your options. So instead what has happened in Pilates land is that in order to stay relevant, um, elders have gone on to be like, well, this is 101 ways that I use the ladder barrel and this is 300 ways to do the roll up. Um, And I have taken those workshops and like enjoyed them when I've taken them. But I can also say from the other side of things that in terms of like financial investments and making me a better instructor, those are not the things that actually made me get better outcomes for my clients. Those are the things that I enjoyed because I love Pilates. Right. So there are, I guess there are perverse kind of financial incentives at play there. And also there's a hierarchy, implicit in what you said, there's a hierarchical kind of, capacity to give feedback is like we can give feedback downwards 
in the hierarchy, but not upwards. It's always easier to give feedback down. Mm-hmm. So how do we normalise giving feedback upwards? I think it's conversations like this. And one of the things I always love to talk about that I truly believe is the democratization that comes with some, like the, the advent of the internet. Like there, that can also go the other way too, but there's more, there's more voices in the conversation, um, which I think calls for more accountability in certain instances and maybe makes people feel braver and like they have more of an opportunity to connect and ask questions, which also connected to that idea. Something that I've experienced is prior to, I don't know, social media, even though I have many mixed feelings around social media, it was much harder to have direct access to people in power in the industry, right? Like I can get on Instagram right now and be like, hi, Raf, how are you? Like, I love your work or whatever, as opposed to before I would have had to pay to go to a conference, fly across the world or do a training with you or whatever those things are. So the people who are in the room dictating the conversations we're having, we do have more access to them than we've had before. Um, So maybe the other part of that is knowing that you as the (laughs) slightly smaller independent Pilates instructor, you can reach out to those people and you can talk to them or I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I agree with you. I think, though, a lot of it has to come from the person uh, sort of up the totem pole making it safe to, to give feedback. Uh, and you do that by rewarding people for giving feedback, even when the feedback's not necessarily to your liking. Yeah. And actually, I want to have like a slight sidebar for the feedback piece, because something I think there is potentially a whole other conversation. Feedback to me doesn't mean also yelling into the Internet at people and canceling them. I have a huge stigma around cancel culture. That's that's a different category in my brain. That is not what I consider feedback. Um, And I think that maybe to your point feedback needs to come when it's solicited. So maybe mm-hmm. more people in positions of power could solicit more feedback mm-hmm. or ask, oh, invite spaces for these conversations to happen. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think in the in in social media where the, the medium is like inherently abbreviated and that's kind of one of the good things about it is it's very, very difficult to convey tone. Mm-hmm. And so I think we could all probably benefit from being more explicit about our intent or the the emotional tone, like in brackets, asked with genuine curiosity or whatever, like rather than just the words, which normally we would convey the the context with body language or tone, etc. So, yeah, I think that I've observed some people doing that well on social media. Um, uh, And just, you know, just a little asterisk saying, hey, it's hard to convey tone here in text. I'm just going to say... Here's here's the vibe. Now here's my question. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, all right. So, you know, do we even do we even have you know? So we want to rally. You know, we think the answer is you know finding a common the common you know cause that we share as Pilates instructors. And it's so weird because for someone who's not into Pilates, looking in and going like, okay, Pilates, there's this tiny niche market and there's like these sub, sub, sub niches within who hate each other's guts because they believe 
it's like when you look at some kind of bizarre religious sect who's like hates the other sect because they've got a slightly different interpretation of one passage in Genesis or something like, and you think like, don't you guys basically believe like 99.9% the same thing? Yeah. That's it's funny you name that because, um, as I mentioned, I have a lot of personal trainer friends now and they're all like trying to understand Pilates land and they see all the things I post and they're like, what the fuck is going on in Pilates land? Like, why is it so crazy? They just don't have the same, I don't know, level of disagreement in their cultural subset of fitness and wellness, which I've really felt found very refreshing. And I don't have a good answer for them about why, but it is mm. apparent to people who are outside of our industry. Mm. And I'm not really in the kind of broader fitness industry as much, but from the from the slightly greater distance at which I sit, I certainly don't perceive those sort of internal sign squabbles within the the fitness industry that I see within the Pilates industry. Yeah, I, to my knowledge, as someone who's not a personal trainer, I hear the feedback I hear is that w- how we are behaving in Pilates land is very strange to them. Yeah, it does seem <laughs> weird. Like when you think about it, it's okay, like if we list all the things that we wildly agree on, right, and then we go, okay, but I believe that neutral spine and you believe that imprint, and it's like therefore we mortal enemies and till the end of time you know <laughs> whereas i think a lot of my personal trainer friends are like well what does it say in namsa or whatever their like certification book thing that is based on actual like guidelines and standards they're like what's what's that answer and you're like oh and they're like that that's the answer <laughs> right so all right so we need to get we need to it comes back to like what is what can we objectively know to be true or untrue about the how the world works and those those things are defined within uh, clinical guidelines like the ACSM, like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, um, etc. Uh, and and you know if you're outside the US, uh, you know the NICE guidelines, the National Institute for Care Excellence in the UK, the Australian government guidelines, they're all basically the same. They all say the same thing because they're all based on the same research. And also they get updated. Right. They do also change. <laughs> they do. They do. Uh, so, you know, so there are, so I guess one of the first questions would be if we were designing like a a, a, a user's manual for how to navigate the these conversations of the Pilates industry, I'd say like step one would be ask, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? Like what's the ultimate aim? Not of this conversation, but of like, you know, why do we care about n- neutral spine or or like you could give a prenatal example or something like that like why is it important to care about what position you put a pregnant woman in when you're teaching her footwork right and so ultimately it's got to come back to the to the good to the you know to this good of the client right because that's why we're here ultimately right because we all i think that's one thing we can pretty much all agree on is we're all here because we like helping people and we want to make a difference in a positive way for our clients right so uh so i think that's pretty uncontroversial so right so we if we go to that and we go okay well then the next question is, right, once we, if we agree that we're here for that purpose, the next question is like, well, is there an objectively better way to do that? Right. And we would go to the guidelines and go, okay, what do the ACOG guidelines say about prenatal exercise? Okay, well, let's do that. (laughs) And I think also, sorry, one other part of that that I think is important to name is that often when we're asking the question, like, what is better for this client? 
and you can name, um, you know, whatever the condition is or whatever. Um, the premise or the place that I think the fear comes into the conversation is is from the desire to do no harm, because that is also intrinsically part of the like empowering and making people feel good. There's we do. I think a lot of us feel a great responsibility to the body in front of us. And so the concern, I would say, comes from the like do no harm place. Mm-hmm. Um which I don't have a follow-up point to that. I just want to name it because I think that a lot of people, like that's the thought that people are coming from. They're like, I just don't want to injure this person. I don't want to hurt them. And then default setting, okay, well, what do the clinical guidelines say? Because those are the safest practices. Right. Right. And the, the, I think the, the underneath of that point that you just made is that there's not a, I, I think us conceiving a spectrum from, you know, safe at one end to dangerous the other end is the wrong visual. I think it's it's a two-dimensional picture that doesn't capture the actual reality. It, there's not like safe at one end and dangerous at the other end. There's probably, you know, a balance, uh, there's a trade-off between safety and benefit, you know, mm-hmm. between risk and benefit. And so, the you know, the safest thing for a prenatal woman or anyone with back pain or whatever would be to, you know, wrap them in cotton wool, stick them in a, you know, intensive care unit um, in a, you know, 300 feet under the earth in a concrete bunker, you know, like with intravenous fluid with perfect, you know, nutrients going into their body. It's like no possible harm can be before them. But obviously that is not the optimal conditions for a human to live in. And there are inherent dangers and not just dangers, there'll be inevitable damage to the person in, you know, in avoiding one risk, we increase a, a different risk, right? So by avoiding the risk of breaking our leg, we increase the risk of going insane and, you know, muscles atrophying and... Uh, yeah, know. which is why I was like, is that really the safest way <laughs> right. to treat that person? Right. So, so, so minimising, there, no, there is no safe end of the continuum, right? They're, they're safe from a certain risk, mm-hmm. right? So to minimise the risk of breaking your leg, well, probably being in a flotation tank with all your limbs strapped to a table and not being able to move and being in a concrete bunker. It's like there's pretty much no chance you're going to break your leg, right? But there's a very high chance you're going to get something like, you know, mental ill health or, you know. Oh, I guess also it's like, well, what's your goal as a person? And presumably most of us want to live like happy, healthy, long enjoyable lives and being strapped in a concrete bunker is not that doesn't check right. that category right. for us. but it's but it's it's going to avoid like you know a disc bulge or you know blowing out your meniscus in your knee or whatever right so so we can avoid risks but almost always i would say probably always at the cost of increasing a different risk, right? Right. So by so it's always a tra- there's no the, the illusion of there's a safe end of the spectrum is is just that, and so I would say there's always a trade off. It's like okay, we want to reduce this risk without increasing this other risk too much, and there's some kind of sweet spot in the middle where it's like okay, there's a bit of risk, but this is the least risk, right? Mm-hmm. Right, which is where I think you had talked about this before. It's helpful. That's why we have principles that we can apply, like that help us make calculations about the level of risk and whether or not it's worth it. So, like, generally for a healthy pregnant woman, it's great for her to exercise. She needs to do that. You want to help her build strength in her back and legs, you know, for all of the different reasons. One, because she's going to be picking up a very heavy child. Two, because her body is changing shape, literally. Like, so... 
if that's the premise of what is the optimal like middle ground, like how can you help her achieve that? Right. And so there is a risk when you, you know, if you're pregnant or not pregnant, there's, there is a risk of, you know, when you get on a reformer or when you get on a mat, like there is, you could tear a muscle, you could pull a ligament. I mean, you can get hit by a car walking out of right, your house. Right. So, but the more, the more strenuously exercised, the more the risk that you'll pull a muscle or do some other kind of soft tissue injury to yourself. But the converse risk of being sedentary is, you know, if you don't exercise, the risk is getting gestational diabetes or overweight or, um, you know, postnatal depression or, you know, so there are, there are risks of exercising. There are risks of not exercising. And it turns out that the risks of not exercising are about a thousand times more deadly than the risks of exercising. And more uncomfortable. Right. Right. So, so yeah, we do want it. So it's never a case of eliminating risk. It's always a case of how do we find the, the trade-off point where we're most comfortable between, you know, essentially competing risks that are mutually exclusive and we can't eliminate all, it's not possible to eliminate all risks. And so, therefore, there isn't, in fact, a risk in, you know, when we try to protect somebody, like if, if you come in and you've got a sore back and I say you must always stay neutral and be rigid and never move, it's like, okay, well, that may or may not, you know, help your back pain. Actually, the research says it probably doesn't. But uh, even if it were the case that that helped your back pain, well, that is going to create other risks for you by making you more fearful of movement and by having you co-contract your abdominals and back muscles constantly, thus increasing compression on those sensitized spinal structures, whereas you're going to you know, potentially cause more irritation and inflammation. So it's like there is no safe end of the stick. Like you mm-hmm. just have to find the balance point somewhere in the middle. So I think there is a real cost to staying safe. I agree. Um, and I think that, and this is like where the Pilates police can have all of their feelings, but I think that in Pilates land, often we lean to the spectrum of playing it too safe. We are less willing, for all of the reasons previously discussed, um, to poke into the boundary of like what is too much Um or what's close to too much or like where's we are not as willing to move outside of the constraints, which is why you will 98% of the time go into a class and it's like footwork is still on three springs or whatever it is, like whatever your example of that wants to be. Um, And as you've talked about endlessly and like, I believe this as well, humans are incredibly adaptable and resilient creatures. I mean, even if you don't want to talk about this from the perspective of like health and exercise science, just look at the world around us that we've built. Like we've built skyscrapers that are like 50 stories tall. Like that is not inherently safe. That's kind of crazy, but we did it and we live in them and it's fine. Um, you jumped in a, like a, 200 ton metal box flew thousands of miles over the ocean too. Yeah, I've done it most of my life. Like it's like we do very irrational or what would be seemingly irrational things quite often and they are totally safe and have very minimal risk. Um, And so with that knowledge, I think, and I know this is a big mission for me in my teaching and all the other parts of myself that people need to feel more empowered to take more risks. We need to be messier and we need to be more, just less, I know it's so easy to say, be less afraid, like be fearless, like yeah, all those things, but just 
experiment more, test the boundaries more. Like you're within reason, your body is so much stronger and more capable than what you actually probably think that it is. Um, and I think that the test for us as movement professionals, Pilates instructors is to help provide a spectrum of suggestions where people can test those boundaries for themselves. Like, because nobody knows their body better than the person that's living in it um, once they understand how it works and how to use it. So I also think there's a part of Pilates land where we um, disempower our clients and students quite often into thinking that they're a lot. We make them feel like they can't do things without us. We make them scared of their own like potent action potential, essentially. Um, and I just want to name that we're all probably a lot more capable than we think. Yeah, I'm going to say, I'm not sure if this is a controversial thing to say or not, but I think uh, if you're afraid, like it's, it might be something that you could actually use to become, to behave more fearlessly if you can simply direct your fear towards the risks of not doing, the thing. you know, the thing. It's like, okay, what happens if you don't take the risk? You know, what's the risk of not act, of not acting? What's like, if you... If you load somebody in Pilates class, there's, there is a slightly increased risk that they'll injure themselves in Pilates class. But if you don't load them in Pilates class, there's an increased risk they're going to injure themselves when they step off the curb wrong because they don't have the strength or the power you know, to, to cope with that load. So it's like get, if we can get scared of those sort of less visible risks that happen outside the Pilates room or maybe just you know, fast forward five years into the future. It's like, what if we're still doing footwork on two springs five years from now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, so maybe just use that negative emotion to propel you towards something more positive. Yeah. And then also I think the nuance in this conversation that I often hear coming up and it's very va valid, um, you know, no two bodies are the same. So of course there's a spectrum for everything that we're talking about. Um, and I'm not trying to suggest that you have been teaching someone on two springs for five years and then all of a sudden you add all the springs. Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, which, again, goes back to the piece about understanding sort of clinical guidelines and just how it works to actually add load over time and how to build up the resilience in the body. That's the other thing that I think Pilates Land, hopefully we're working on talking about this more, is that it's not like you just all of a sudden become resilient. It's like you start to consciously decide that that's something you want to cultivate in yourself or in your clients. And then you take like small incremental steps towards helping them get to that place, which is why in like previous Pilates Elephants podcasts, you and Heath have talked a lot about this, like the concept of layering and how you build layers into a class and why that's useful and how that gives people literal actual steps about on how to do the thing, like how to become stronger, how to build resilience over time. Um, and then it goes without saying, but just to also name it, like this is where if you are talking to clients or students, the consistency piece comes into play um, and the reality of that conversation. So it's like the slow added over time and then also doing it regularly enough to become resilient. Hmm. There's something I'm, I'm not sure if this is how much of a side quest this is, but I'd, I'd like to just at least briefly go there, which is when you mentioned the consistency thing that I think uh, for years I felt this, I assume a lot of other people do feel it as well. In fact, I know they do because they tell me it, that they don't necessarily feel the, the or they have the authority or the, the leverage to say to the clients, hey, no, it's not okay that you just come whenever it suits you. I need you to come three times a week. 
or you know whatever number of times a week if you want to achieve X result. You know that's what I require, and I know Kyle that actually that's what you do in your with your private clients because you say, hey, I only see people twice. Is it twice a week? Is minimum of two, but the majority is three to four. Right. So how do you know if I'm a if I'm a Pilates instructor listening to this going, oh well, that's okay for you, Kyle. You know, but how do I do it? Like, how do you? just get all of your clients to just go like, no, I don't see people casually. I don't do ad hoc sessions. You know, will you sign up for three days a week or you don't, we don't work together. I always ask them what their goals are. Um, I ask them why they want to do Pilates and all of them are like to get strong, (laughs) to do the thing that I like. Like I want to surf better. I want to run stronger or whatever the thing is. And then once we've established what their goals are, I mean, it's a fact like, okay, great. This is your goal. If that's your goal, you need to do this a minimum of two times a week because, and you need to do it this way with me at these times, because if you don't, you're not going to see progress and you're going to feel like you're wasting a lot of money. And it's pretty much that, like that, that's as bluntly as I say it. And I think that, um, as somebody who has spent the majority or a good portion of my life being very concerned about being kind and being nice to people, I think and I still hold that as a value, I think that um, what is helpful is to understand that when you don't have very firm boundaries or like structures for your clients to work within, and I'm speaking specifically about private practice because that's basically what I do now, um, you're actually doing them a huge disservice because you're not giving them the thing that they're that they actually want and then in turn you're giving you're doing yourself a great disservice because you're not going to deliver you won't deliver the results right and i have had this happen and i have fired clients um and those are hard conversations to have but at the end of the day i think that if you can be very clear on the, you and the client have to have, you are, it's kind of like a marriage. Like you're agreeing to a certain sort of- prenuptial agreement. It's yeah, it's like a prenuptial (laughs) agreement. It's like you're, they say they want a thing. You're like, I can help you with that thing. And then there's- You agree on the terms. You agree on the terms and and you both have to hold those terms. So like, and you can, I think individual, you've done many episodes on this. Um, There's a lot of, you can decide what those terms are that work for you and how you want to do that. But um, that's the other half of your role. It's not just knowing all the fitness stuff. It's like giving a time, a place and then holding that person accountable. Right. And the reality is there will be some people who that number of times a week isn't what they want. And that's cool because you don't need like everyone in the world. Yeah. And also what often, what has happened in life also is that sometimes that person will be like, Oh, that sounds like a lot. I'm not really into that. I'm just going to randomly like go take classes. And then ultimately they don't get the result that they want. Cause they're not just like you said, they wouldn't, <laughs> Yeah, they're not doing it in a program fashion. Um, and so then they come back and they're like, yeah, yeah I've randomly been taking all these classes. I feel very unsatisfied. <laughs> like, right. And I mean, you can say maybe not in these exact words, but you know, words to the effect of, okay, well, when you get sick of the pain and when when you get sick enough of the pain you know come and see me (laughs) yeah and and like that i have said things like that to people and it's i think that um in the u.s specifically we have a very hard time being direct and we have a very hard time being blunt and sometimes that is surprises me so much because my my kind of uh 
perception is that US people are very upfront and blunt. That's hilarious. Well, I lived in Israel, so I'm biased also right. because they're there. They're literally, like they tell you the exact thing as soon as it's happening. Yeah. I think we can dance around topics a lot more mm-hmm. than just like, na- it takes practice to name mm-hmm. what it is that you want people to do and then say it and then let them decide what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was a great little side quest. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, and it comes back to the same theme, I think, which is what are we here for ultimately, which is the achieving the outcome for the client. And then the question is what outcome? And then the, outcome, and then the answer is like, well, why did the client come to see you? Why are they paying you money? Mm-hmm. What, how will they know you've done a good job? Uh, and it's like, well, that's what we're trying to achieve. And then the question is, okay, well, what's the best way to achieve that? And it turns out that coming every so often when it suits you is not the best way to achieve that. And, <laughs> and also if you're a client and somebody tells you that that's possible, they're lying to you. Right. <laughs> it's just not how the body works. Right. And also that there probably are, you know, depending on how niche the client's needs are, but there probably are some kind of guidelines around, you know, how to maximise your strengthening or flexibility training or rehabilitation, you know, for body part, you know, that they're they're concerned about or the activity that they're concerned about. And so there probably are like evidence-based guidelines on, okay, if I want to get better at surfing, it's like, well, there probably are some maybe not specific exact prescriptions of what to do, but some some guidelines that you could have colour within these lines, you can do anything you want as long as you're inside this square sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with when it comes to back pain or shoulder surgery or whatever it might be, there probably are, is some kind of guideline. But then when it comes to somebody who's just like comes in, and this is where I'm hoping to br- we'll bring it full circle, and someone comes in and they, like they don't have any particular sort of major, you know, orthopaedic injuries or goal to run the Boston Marathon or anything like that. There's kind of like have some aches and pains. I wouldn't mind feeling a bit less stiff and whatever. Um, or maybe it's just like they want the social hour, you know. That's also a thing. Um, and 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 so then we can hopefully recognise that, okay, some people might be drawn to a more somatic practice and some people might be drawn more to a classical practice and some people might be drawn to more of the megaforma. And it's like, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's not something we need to fix. No, it's not. And actually there's, I want to just share like for many years I taught, uh, in a studio on the Upper East Side of New York City and it's a very specific subset. Um, people who live there will know what I'm talking about. And there happened to be a lot of housewives that live in that area. Um, and there was a group of women who would come in every week and I, they really weren't there to do Pilates. They were there to hang out with each other and like. Knowing that that was kind of their MO made it totally fine that that was what was what happened in that class. Um, so I think back to the piece from before about being clear about what it is you're trying to achieve with your clients and your students is an important guide for understanding mm. what is or not what is or is not going to be valuable to them in that experience. Mm. I think we can probably ref- turn the mirror on ourselves as well, and when we're seeking further education or considering, you know, should I do this workshop, conference, you know, whatever, my ongoing certification, whatever it might be, is like, okay, well, what am I trying to achieve here? And, and you know, I, dear listener, I don't know what you're trying to achieve, only you can know that, but of the hundreds of people I have asked that question, almost always they say um, one of two things, one or both of two things, which is I want to feel like less of a fraud mm-hmm. and I want to make more money slash get more clients. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So then take the workshops, which is probably, I'm going to guess, not 101 ways to use a magic circle that are going to help you achieve that thing. Right. And if, if whatever it is that you feel like a fraud about, like go learn that thing. Yeah. And then if you do feel like a fraud about something, name that you feel like I think that goes back to the earlier part of this conversation, normalizing, admitting when you feel like you don't know enough about something right. or you feel insecure about something. Um, and knowing that that doesn't make you less of an instructor and it doesn't right. value you any lower than somebody who might not be expressing those feelings. Actually, I think all of us at various points in our career and maybe even on a daily basis encounter those feelings in some capacity or not. Um, so also being able to just admit that because when you say it out loud and you name like, oh, I feel really insecure about teaching I want to say pre and postnatal populations, but that's all. Like you can go, you can go learn about that specifically if you want to. You can. Yeah. You can. Uh, I, you know what I I am terrible at and dislike intensely is the inverted series on the ladder barrel. It's my favorite series. I just, every time I did my certification, like teaching certification, I was like, oh, can someone else sub for me that day? I just hate doing that. I, yeah, I've, um, I'm I'm no good at them, and I'm no good at doing them, and I just always would, you know, look forward with great anxiety and loathing to to the day when we're doing those exercises. Whereas that's like my favorite. I love the ladder barrel so much. Um, I get to exploit all of my flexibility, but I hate the pedipole, and I've <laughs> never actually. Yeah, actually, I think it's I've never actually really taught a client on the pedipole. And um, when you name that, you're no longer a fraud because the fraud is pretending to be something but not really being that thing. And if you say, hey, I'm not that thing, it's like, oh, that's not a fraud anymore. But I have some colleagues who are incredible at teaching pedipole and I'm so happy to recommend them if you right. want to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> right. And so we don't have to be good at everything and you can have great success in this industry and still suck ass at doing the inverted series on the ladder barrel or the pedipole or whatever it might be. Which goes back to, I think you have said this many times um, and so have other guests that you've had on the podcast, but like you don't have to be able to physically do every exercise yeah. to teach it. Like, right. that's insane. Right. And if that was the case, then it's like, well, Romana, when she was in her 70s. Or Kathy Grant in right. her freaking 80s. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, we should have fired those people and relegated them. It's like, oh, you can't do the walkover anymore. All right. Well, you can't teach then. Yeah, you know, it's like well, that's ridiculous. Doesn't make sense, <laughs> right? So, so if it's if it's okay for Amanda and Kathy Grant, dear listener, maybe it's okay for you. Yeah, um, <laughs> definitely okay for you. Um, all right, so I think have we have we have we solved the have we solved the problem, or is is there a solution, or have we have we talked have we talked through everything that that needs to be said? I think the one thing we didn't really name specifically is uh, we like alluded to it, but we didn't name it is this concept of switching from, um, scarcity mindset to more of an abundance mindset, um, which is true. It's important, not just for Pilates, but also for life, um, which could be a whole entire conversation <laughs> on its own. But instead of acting from a place of feeling like, I don't know this thing, I'm a fraud and freaking out about it. Um, 
maybe fixating on the things that you do know. And I know that when I was teaching um, in K through 12 education, something that one of my mentors told me to do, which I always found very helpful was they tell you to keep like a happiness folder, which was essentially a folder that was filled with like, I don't know, pictures or cards that kids had written to me when they had talked about something meaningful that we'd done or said thank you for a project. And I think everyone has their version of that in their professional life. Maybe it's not an actual tangible folder with like cards from clients who love you, or maybe it is. Um, But being able to look at the successes that you have, even if that success is literally like, man, I programmed the shit out of that class and everybody came out like feeling really good and you like know it. And we know when we do, we know in our lives when we have those moments because you feel it, right? Or you're even if it's something smaller than that, like, yeah, that playlist really got this very sleepy room like bumping, like that's that's a win and you should celebrate that. And then start from that place to move into whatever you want your next sort of aspirational goal or thing to be, which could be, all right, my playlist was amazing. I programmed that class really well. I still feel like when I'm calling out cues in class, um, I'm not doing the best, like I could layer class in a little bit more of an inclusive way so that my prenatal clients have more options because I feel like they're doing the same class over and over or whatever your version of that is like so to work from a place of thinking about the things that you are already doing well as opposed to fixating on what you feel like is wrong mm. I, I'm, I'm in favor of that I guess my approach is a little bit different though I I just see like if I have a skill if I identify a skills gap I just like that's not a good or bad thing. It's just a thing, right? So it's like, oh, I kind of suck at this thing. I need to get better at it. Okay, how do I get better at it? You know, like, do I read a book? Do I do a course? Do I get a mentor? Do I just practice it? You know, it's like, so there doesn't have to be a negative emotional valence to recognising a skills gap. It's like, we all have them, you know. (laughs) No one was born knowing everything, as it turns out. (laughs) Right. And so it's like, great, now you know that that's, that's a gap for you. And it's like we all have, like the the amount of stuff that we don't we're not good at is you know infinite compared to what we do know. And so it's like, all right, of all of the infinite things that you'd kind of suck at, like which is the which is the most important for you to improve a little bit, you know? Yeah. So celebrate there. your wins, and then also identify your skills gap and pursue the things that you don't know. Right. And I and I think that that I think it is like we have so many skills gaps, all of us, myself included. That's like, okay, well, where do you start? It's like, well, just the fact that you suck at something doesn't mean you necessarily need to get better at it. Like, it's, it's okay to suck at, like, I've got no desire and I'm taking zero action to get better at the inverted series on the ladder barrel. I suck at spelling. I am not actively pursuing becoming a better speller. <laughs> right. It's like, I'm okay with that, you know. <laughs> uh, and sometimes, it, like, it's okay to just suck. It's like, yeah, I just suck. I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to teach it unless I absolutely have to. It's like, I'll be the last person on the roster that will say yes to that day. Uh, and so that's just the thing. I'm cool with it. And then there are other things where you can just you can just neutralise your weaknesses. Like I've got the I've got a terrible sense of direction. I literally could get lost going to the corner store, you know, near my home. Uh, but I've got GPS, so it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't need to. Uh, I don't need to be good at at directions. Um, uh, you know, so I think there are there are many ways, dear listener, like within the Pilates world, that you could either just ignore the things that 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 you suck and suck at and hate and just go, you know what? Great. I'm just not going to teach that apparatus or that exercise or that whatever, that client demographic. Or you could neutralize it by just 
getting a playlist created or writing out a step step by step instructions or going you know like there are, there are some just some cheat codes that you could use or you could go and learn how to be good at it right yeah which i think brings us like full full circle back to the beginning of the conversation about the like what is and isn't Pilates and why do we keep having these same conversations over and over again? And it's like the, when I was dancing around trying not to be toxically positive, this is kind of what I was trying to say is that you can specialize. There's so much space in the industry for literally every type of teacher mm-hmm. and client. Um, and so maybe you fall more into one category than the other. And it's actually a strength to know that about yourself. Um, I think we run into more challenges when we feel like we have to force ourselves perfectly into every box. Maybe you want to be better at one very specific thing. That's totally an option. Right. And I think this is a lot of the sort of uh, reasons that I hear from people when they say like I'm versions of I'm not good enough because dot, dot, dot. It's like, oh, I'm not fully certified or "I, I don't know how to teach this population. I haven't done this, you know, certification course or whatever, or I'm just new in my career or I'm not perfect at all the moves or I can't touch my toes or, you know, whatever the, the thing is. It's like, well, again, back to your question, like, what are we trying, what are we here for? What, 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 what am I trying to achieve? It's like, well, and that, the answer to that question has to be some version of the best result for my client, right? It's like, okay, well, who's your client? Oh, if my clients are like elderly, postmenopausal women with osteoporosis, it's like, well, how important is it that I'm able to do the splits? You know, for me, not very important. They don't care. (laughs) We may never do that exercise together, (laughs) right? And 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 even if we do it, do do it together. Like, if I'm to demonstrate a perfect 180 degree split, would that likely, you know, make inspire them or make them think like, oh crap, well it's okay for you, you know, 40 years younger than me, but I'll never do that. It's like maybe it's better for me to demonstrate a not very big split, right? And I actually personally have a really strong policy around never demonstrate. I don't do ever for that reason. Yeah. I really never demonstrate anything because it's not about me. I want the person who's moving to figure out what is going on in their body. Right. And so, you know, dear listener, if your version of that is like, I can't do splits or I only teach mat work or I'm not blah, 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 whatever. It's like, well, why are you here? What are we trying to achieve? The good of the client. What is the best way to achieve that? Let's look in the guidelines. Is there a guideline that says, you know, if you're teaching women, postmenopausal women with osteoporosis, what you should do? Yes, as a matter of fact, there is. Go do that. Who cares if you can do the splits or if you're only qualified in mat work or if you're the wrong, quote, shape or age or... All of the above. Or whatever, <laughs> right? It's like that. you won't find any of those things in the guidelines. It doesn't say, oh, you must be this height, this weight, this level of flexibility. It's like that's not part of the guidelines. This certification. <laughs> right. It's just like, yeah, do these exercises and don't do these types of movements. Like that's that's it, right? And so you can do that on the mat. You can do it on a reformer. You can do it if you're newly qualified. You can do it if you're tall, short, fat, thin, flexible, strong. Like doesn't matter. That's the cool part about Pilates. <laughs> right. So, yeah, why, why are we here? That's got to be for the client. What's the best way to achieve that? And if the answer is like, you know, avoid, in the case of osteoporosis, avoid excessive end range twisting and bending, right, with the emphasis on excessive, uh, then it's like, all right, well, could we avoid excessive end range twisting and bending on the mat? Yes, we could. On the reformer? Yes, we could. Pedipool? Ladder barrel? It's going to be harder on the ladder barrel. Yeah, but maybe, depending on the person. (laughs) Wouldn't be my first choice of apparatus. Yeah, chair? Yes. Cadillac? Yes. Like, Fitball, yes. Like, 
sofa, yes. Like, doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> Just like, yeah, so, so I think if we focus about, you know, are we in, what higher aim are we in service of here? And then focus goes off us. It's not about it's not about us. It's about the client, which ultimately is. And you've talked about this also a lot. Um, that is the value of having a therapeutic alliance with your clients, which is also the value of setting very clear guidelines under which you choose to work together. Yeah, I can help you. You know, beat osteoporosis and avoid fractures and all of that. And working with me looks like doing three sessions a week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Good good talk. Yeah. Thanks, Raph. (laughs) After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.